1: I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. So we start with James. Good morning, James.
2: Morning, Bob. How you doing?
1: You know, I'm just all smiles. It uh, So far as I know, the rain came down without any severe wind gusts and without any hail, at least in my part of the world. So I just hope there's plenty of it, and uh, hopefully I'll get home at a reasonable hour today and find out all about that.
3: Yeah, it's looking pretty good out here. got a three-tenths yesterday, and it looks like it might once I get back to the farm, it might be close to an inch. Uh, it's got a pretty good rain.
1: Well, and it looks like we could have. I think we've seen the heavy rain we're going to see for today, but there may be some more rain moving over us for the next hour or two before it uh, moves on out and clears out and turns into a pretty day. So I'm. I, it's a good Sunday morning in my book. Yes,
3: sir. Hey, um, one of your Hill Country guys came in and was buying tomato transplants. And uh, ask about frost cloth, Uh-huh. and I, I kind of did a double take. But he says about a week ago y'all had frost up there in the hill country.
1: Oh yeah, Monday or Tuesday morning, I had fairly heavy frost at my house.
3: How do you sell uh, that? Uh, how do you sell that frost cloth at your nursery? Do you sell them in ten by twelve packs, or do you you just? Uh, having a 12 foot wide roll
1: that you see. We sell it in the 10 by 12 tracks. Only folks I know that sell it in the big rolls, uh, would be Phoenix Nursery. And I know Mike and Mark over there, they do have the big rolls. They've got, you know, we have more homeowner customers, they have more commercial guys out there. And, uh, you know, they are set up, they've got that little covered area where they have big old rolls of shade cloth and, uh, big old rolls of weed block and also the big rolls of the, uh, um, uh, well, we just call it Floating Row Cover. Some people call it Frost Blanket, uh, the brand we like best. And there are lots of them out there, is uh, It's like the letter N and then S-U-L-A-T-E, Insulate. And uh, I would caution people to check because we tried a bunch of different uh, of the frost covers and some of them sure worked better than others and uh, we said on on the insulate is the best one we could find i'm not saying there may not be good others out there but there are two or three of them that were fairly pricey that we found just gave almost no protection at all so it makes a big difference in uh in how they're woven and the material they use i can't say i totally understand it but i i think that uh, you know, it serves a double protection. In my experience, I think that cold, dry wind is almost as damaging to transplants as the actual frost is. So I think there are lots of reasons to uh, give those little seedlings for benefit of folks that don't have a nice hoop house to start things out in i think that frost cloth uh, serves a real good purpose in the garden i find if you take it on and off it'll last for years and years if you leave it in place and i leave mine in place on up until the summer it lasts about three years for me but uh i find it helps to keep the varmints away from the little plants i think it helps with keeping out some of the bugs and it certainly helps with the wind so when i first plant my tomato and other transplants pepper transplants and eggplant things that i'm going to put a cage over i go ahead and wrap the lower 12 to 18 inches of that cage with it and i leave it on all season
3: yeah that's uh that sounds about the way i'd I'd do it i was wondering uh uh with those home gardeners they just what do they just take those 10 by 12 uh, packages and just cover the like the cages is that what they you
1: cover? you can do that you know I go through and uh, I rarely wrap the whole cage I, I will lay that thing out and then I cut it into strips about 15 to 18 inches wide and um, that's uh, just on, on a bigger tomato cage that's enough to give a good loop around it uh, smaller tomato cages I can split that in half. And each one of those 15-inch wide strips, I can wrap two cages with it. And then uh, if it if it looks like we're going to get frost, I just take little squares of it and a couple of clothespins and just kind of make a little top uh, for that little silo that I created to begin with. So I, I'd, I'd leave it in big pieces, like if we're going to wrap up some kind of, uh, not so much in the garden, but if we're going to wrap up, say, Esperanza or... A semi-hardy plant out there, then yeah, we just wrap it up. I use clothespins. Some people just take a, you know, a finishing nail and just use that to uh, secure it in place. But uh, I, I take those ten by twelve sheets and cut them up a bit.
3: Well, thanks for giving me the the lowdown on that stuff. I sure appreciate the, uh, the time you gave me to explain that to me and uh i hope that sudan comes up i planted the other day. <laughs> well
1: i can't think of anything that would make it much better than having uh having real good rain on it and uh sounds like you uh um sounds like you you've gotten a good rain so far and i think we're still going to see a little bit more rain before it moves out i my guess in looking at the radar, maybe by ten, eleven o'clock, we're going to be into a real nice day. But we may get another quarter of an inch or so of rain on top. You know, I say bring it on. I, you and I have both seen this country too dry a whole lot more than we've ever seen it too wet. So good, good soaker is going to be a good thing.
3: All right. Thanks, Bob, for taking my call and answering my question.
1: Always a pleasure, James. You have a great day, and uh, I'll head up Spring Branchway. Good morning, Mike. Good morning bob how you doing sir oh hey, again it's just a beautiful day i i got up early and beat the storm in so it was an easy ride in and uh just i'm all smiles when i see moisture coming down in a liquid form
4: indeed indeed yeah i think uh, the way the crow flies were about on the same plane it uh yeah it, it seemed to have started here around four o'clock but it's just been kind of off and on nothing real real heavy but boy yesterday afternoon Coming back uh, from in town, boy, it sure, we sure got about 45 good strong minutes of hard, hard pouring rain. And and yeah, you my rain barrels. I don't have a – I haven't got around to putting a new gauge out. But,
0: uh,
4: <laughs> probably got about <laughs> three-quarters uh, – you know to an inch
1: well you 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 were in the right spot yesterday afternoon my business partner got point six seven over uh between bergheim yeah, and Yeah, i got almost nothing yeah. i got two hundredths in bernie so you guys were a little further east got the good afternoon range yesterday but i think all of us got a pretty good shower this morning
4: yeah and san Marcos area got a really good last night i sat out there and watched the lightning show and yep. uh, you know according to the weather lady they uh they got it pretty good over there, anyway.
1: And some places uh, got a little hail up that way, so hope nobody lost crops. Yeah, that's but.
4: what that, that's what I was looking at too. Yeah, uh, no no hail here, but uh, I'm glad of that. But I'm with you bringing on. You know, it's <laughs> you know I I've got cracks in the ground. As you say, a, a calf could drop.
1: Yeah, uh, you know. you're exactly right. What can I help it's you with this morning,
4: a, uh, Mom? i uh got a bunch of extra peppers and uh you know that I started
1: uh-huh and I'm
4: trying to remember how far uh apart can I space those and still get you know i i remember one year I had some oh i don't know white flies or scale or something i don't wanna you know i don't wanna get too you know too crowded but uh just kind of looking at how far. I don't remember what I did last year. It seems like I had you know, had them a foot apart, 18 inches.
1: What what uh, kind of peppers are you growing, Mike?
4: Well, I'm growing shishito. I've got a real good Spanish pepper that I've been promising to bring you some seed on. I don't even know what it is, but it's very productive. I've got some jalapenos. I've got some bananas and some chili pequins.
1: All right. Well, everything you're describing there with the exception of the chili pequin will make relatively small plants. Now, my bell peppers, I have to space them out a little bit uh, further, but now little shishitos, uh, jalapenos, uh, those... What I frequently do is I plant them in pairs. I'll plant two plants maybe three or four inches apart and then put a cage over them. And then I'll move over 12, 14 inches, and I'll plant another pair of plants, move another 12, 14 inches. In the case of the bells, I'm going to make my little pairs about 18 inches apart. Uh, but the shishitos are really compact little plants. And um yeah. I, you know, I don't ever see a problem with crowding. Uh, the bananas are the, um, they're kind of in between the shishitos and the bells as far as the amount of space they take up. But like I say, I typically plant them in pairs and uh, then space those somewhere between 14 and 18 inches apart.
4: Okay. Yeah, well, I've got, I've got my shishitos and that Spanish pepper planted, and I I kind of did that with the, uh, with the Spanish. I didn't, you know, my shishitos. I didn't get as many out of my starts. I,
1: mm-hmm.
4: I, I mean, I've got enough for us. But,
1: uh, yeah, <laughs> That's you a know, productive little pepper, and was, it sure is a good pepper. Oh,
4: boy, yeah. I, I did them last year, Bob, and I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, I've, I've followed you for years, and, boy, all the all the people just you need to know the stuff that you mentioned, how well it does. Yep. I mean, you know, between the—
1: Blister and a cast-iron skillet. And...
4: The, the only one I had not had the greatest luck with is— uh, is uh, the Sun Gold Tomatoes. Now, you know, I've, I've yet to get those out. I'm going to try to get them out. To, i got to get the rest of everything out today. I don't have any choice. But, sure. Uh, you know, they just haven't done as well in my garden i don't know why well i don't know
1: if it's and everybody's garden's different i can't grow yellow pears everybody else thinks yellow pear tomato is the easiest thing in the world to grow my sungals grow just incredibly well and my yellow pears uh just don't don't produce at all so everybody's gardens is a little different i'd tell you maybe move over and try a different spot in your garden if something's just not right about the place you've been planting them but you know plenty of fertilizer and uh and bright son. That's, that's my secret. Yeah,
4: you're, you're exactly right, Bob, because there are certain spots and, you know, in that garden that they just seem to
0: <laughs>
4: seem to really do better, be, really, you know, much better, but needless to say everything else, you know, I've got everything else off to a good start, uh, black creme, you know, uh, some lemon boys and, of course, Juliet's and sweet One but I've got to get the rest in today.
1: Well, you know. good luck with that, Mike, and uh, it's good to yes, talk sir. to you. All right, one open line. If you want to grab it, you know the number, 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Mike and Phyllis and Richard, and down the right-of-way, good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. i
3: got a few raindrops falling on my head down here.
1: <laughs> and you guys love it just like we do.
3: You better believe it. Um <clears throat> mealybugs eating up the leaves on my Alamo tree. Uh saw on the internet something about spraying with alcohol, rubbing alcohol. Uh, anything else you would
5: suggest?
1: Well, mealybugs don't really eat leaves. Mealybugs are uh in effect an unarbored scale. They certainly do damage to plants, but they do it by sucking the sap out of the stem, not by physically eating a leaf. So um, are you actually having holes and things in the leaves?
3: Um, yeah, uh, but, uh, were the, I mean, I, I didn't even know what heck they were when I pulled the leaf off, you know, I got covered up with the white powder, which I guess is the bugs, right?
1: Well, the bugs have a whitish, uh, kind of a powdery coating on them. Um. rubbing alcohol would kill them. And that's what a lot of folks do on small plants. They will take a, uh, uh, just a Q-tip or something like that and just swab them with alcohol. Alcohol is a uh, desiccant. It it sucks the moisture out of things. And I would not generally recommend an overall spray uh, with that because that could be as damaging to the foliage as damaging or more damaging then uh you know than the actual bugs are, I would tend to uh use an insecticidal soap or something like that that 's going to be hard on the bad insects, easy on the beneficials, and no problem at all for the plants you 're spraying it on wouldn't spray it in the middle of a hot, sunny afternoon, you could get a little burn, what we call phytotoxicity, but I think a a soap product would be much more effective and uh, much more efficient without the side effects so i'd be looking for safer soap or uh you know one of the other good insecticidal soaps mike i think that's going to do a much better job for you than rubbing alcohol will
3: okie doke i guess i'll have to get get it up there at your place when i get up again
1: well there. just any nursery or any feed store should have one or another of the insecticidal soaps they uh they they kill by coating and smothering the insects. Uh, I I hate, uh, I'm not going to suggest spraying spinosad or anything like that up in the air because it's so hard on bees and other things like that, but your insecticidal soap, other than a few beneficials which, you know, might might get some minor damage from it, I just think the soap is going to be a lot safer, a lot cheaper, and a lot more effective.
3: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Bob.
1: Please you know, it's always a pleasure. You have a great day, and uh, hopefully get a good rain out of it. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Okay. Right, bye-bye. Bye. Phyllis is next. Good morning, Phyllis.
6: Yes, I have just one major question. We have um, stickers in our lawn, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering what to do to get mm-hmm. rid of them.
1: Well, generally speaking with stickers, and I, I can tell you I've, I've had plenty of it, plenty of experience with these things. Uh, we call them a real pain in the grass. Um, stickers are an annual plant. They die completely every year. They come back from seed the following year. The tough thing is that they can sprout any time from March through August. And so the general pre-emergence just aren't effective. Um, I recommend a couple of things. Um, what what is your basic grass? What what would you? Well, we
6: have actually some Bermuda and some Saint Augustine.
1: Okay. Generally speaking, if you can strengthen that. You will get rid of most of them. What I'll tell you, I had a place in my yard, a place we used for a croquet court, that was so thick with sticker burgers, you couldn't even walk through it. I did two things. I fertilized, and then I put a thin layer of compost about maybe a quarter of inch deep over it. It seems that the compost has a, a natural pre-emergent effect. It actually you know, suppresses or keeps the burrs from germinating. Now, I did it in the fall. If you're going to do it this spring, you need to do it real soon because those sticker burrs be sprouting very shortly. But the area where I put down the fertilizer and the compost, I went from being not able to walk through it to having an area that probably 40 by 80 feet, and I think I pulled about four sticker burr plants the entire season the next year. So I have not found any chemical treatments at work, but for me, the, the compost and the fertilizer did two things. It suppressed the germination of the sticker burr seeds, and it thickened the grass up. And I haven't had a sticker burr down there since then. This probably been five or six years ago that I did that, and uh, birds are just no longer an issue in that area. And this is not an area that I take a lot of care of. I water it, but uh, or I'm sorry, I, I mow it, but I don't really have the water to water it often. And uh, for me, just that one year of fairly intensive treatment with fertilizer and the compost just uh, totally wiped the bird problem out.
6: How heavy would you put the compost?
1: I put it between a quarter and a half an inch thick. And I just, uh, you know, it's a lot of work there. (laughs) You want to get somebody to help you with it if you can. I had two black labs give me a lot of help with spreading it around, but uh, then I needed to go back with my rake. I take a hard rake, what they call a grass rake, and just flip it upside down where it's got that flat bar, and that's what I use to push it back and forth. And I didn't try to do it all in one afternoon. I spread it out over about a week's time, but uh, it, it sure was effective.
6: I was going to tell you we had quite a bit of hail last night. I live out in New Braunfels.
1: Oh, really? Wondering
6: what it did to our tomato plants.
1: How big was the hail?
6: It was pretty bad. I mean, it was and for quite a long time.
1: Well, I unfortunately, hail can be very damaging in my garden and i have to admit i did not i have not planted my tomato plants yet that's on the agenda for this week and i'm glad i didn't because i got a heavy frost last tuesday morning but i have i go ahead and put the cages on top of the plants when i plant the plant but i cut myself a bunch of little i'd say maybe 20 inch square pieces of hardware cloth and i just put those on top of my tomato cages, and now if the hail's coming at a steep angle, I'll still get some damage, but uh, I haven't lost a plant or had damage really to a single plant since I started putting that little hail cap. It's just like a little, you know, kind of like a mortar board, a graduation cap, just a little flat thing that sits on top of my tomato cages, and that has totally stopped my hail damage and cost almost nothing, and it's just an extra you know, thirty seconds work when I'm uh, putting the tomato plants out, and uh, if you find that you do have significant damage, uh, you're just going to have to look at the little plants. There's still lots of tomatoes available at the nurseries, and you may be wise just to plant a few mm-hmm. new plants. But uh, right. think about making some little squares of hardware cloth, and, uh, really? and then you sleep better when the hail comes.
6: Yeah, that's right. Another thing I want to ask you: What time does your program start on Saturday morning?
1: Five thirty. An okay. indecent hour, but you know it's amazing how many people are up and wanting to talk. And fortunately, um, there seem to be many fewer hours in the or many fewer commercials in the early hour of the show. So uh, that's the time we get a lot of phone calls in. So if you're if you're a morning person, uh, five thirty is when we start oh. talking. Okay.
6: All right. Well. Well, thank you very much.
1: It's my pleasure. And uh, okay. it, did you get a good rain out of things this morning? Yes
6: in fact it seems like it's probably still drizzling at least out there
1: well it's uh the hail was, can stay away but the rain was sure welcome right. you have a great right. sunday and we'll right. talk again fellas thank you so much richard's up next good morning richard good morning bob morning sir
7: hey i wanted to see if you can give me some either some advice on my avocado tree or just to continue telling me to be patient with it um <laughs> So in the in the fall I brought I bought an avocado tree kind of pre curious timing, but October November and mm-hmm. uh, it was in a, it was from a local nursery. It was in a greenhouse when I bought it so I figured since it was still cold outside I'd leave it in, in, indoors for a couple months, um, get as much sun as I could and then um, come January, February I'd put it outside and try to bring it in anytime it got below 40. Uh, but it only has about it's obviously been over very overcast this uh, last few months. And it's only got about five or six leaves on it right now. Okay. And they've they've since I, I say that because some of them have like probably two thirds of them have fallen off. Uh, they've gotten yellow at the stem, and then they eventually they die off. So I don't know if it's just the warm weather, lack of sunlight. I don't know if you can give me any tips.
1: Well, I when you have leaves yellowing and dropping, the most common situation is when it's gotten a little too dry. And, um, you know, so it's hard to keep things adequately watered because I love to tell people, you know, there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. And you need to be right. able to really flood things when you water them, which frequently means move them outside, give them a very thorough soaking, and then move them back in. Um, has your avocado started putting on any new growth at all this spring?
7: I just see what looks like little buds at the stems of okay. the branches, but um, well, get, they're not blooming. They're not.
1: Is your ultimate plan to put it in the ground?
7: Um, I'm going to try to go as large of a container as I can okay. um, to see if I can get any fruit off of it that way.
1: Okay. Well, don't ever put in – it was probably in, what, a five-gallon container when you got it, about a 10-inch size pot. Yes, sir. Okay. Don't ever go from a tiny little container to an oversized container. Uh, I would go up to a 15-gallon size at the largest, and that's going to be a lot easier for you to maintain. I would get it outside to stay. I doubt very much we're going to have any any weather from this point on that's going to threaten it cold-wise. And I would get on a program with a good liquid fertilizer, either Medina's Has to grow or one of Espoma's liquid fertilizers. I'd be doing that like every 10 days to two weeks i'd be feeding it real frequently i'd have it out where it gets good strong sunlight for at least half a day and i think that uh it's going to Turn around, leaf out, turn into the beautiful tree you want it to be. I doubt very much that you're going to mention the way it blooms or fruit this year, but uh, sure. I this is this is a time of year the plant's probably going to put on seventy percent of its year's growth in the next uh, month to six weeks so need to get it out if you want to replant it now you can if you want to wait a few weeks before you do that just watch your watering thoroughly remember to soak it extremely thoroughly that liquid fertilizer every ten days. Two weeks. That's going to be really important to it as well, and uh, um, it's you you should see a very rapid change in the plant this spring.
7: Okay, and I have already repotted it because the nurseryman told me it had been in in the same pot for about two years. So I did exactly what you said. Okay, I used some rose soil just for permeation. Oh, that's fine. A couple inches on each side, and then. I just want to make sure if it lost its leaves, if it's still going to have a way to gather the sunlight. And
1: all oh yeah, stuff. if it if it has those little green buds on it, uh, that okay. will change very quickly. Now, do check the base of the tree because uh, just like shade trees, so many. Fruit trees come to us buried too deeply in the pot. And you do want to see those major roots flaring out exposed to the air. So check down at the base if you need to pull an inch or two of soil away from the trunk. Uh even if you take out a few little fibrous roots when you do that, long term that's gonna really benefit the plant. So that's the other thing that I'd suggest you do. Beyond that, yeah, patience is a is a good virtue for every gardener. Sounds like a plan. Thank you. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Well, those lines filled up almost immediately. We're going to talk to Patrick and Chris and Carol and Mike. And Patrick is up first. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Good morning sir. I a
8: couple of questions for you. Yes, one's about the tomatoes, and the other one's about some olive trees I have. Okay. Uh, when do we put down the cornmeal on the on the uh, tomatoes?
1: Anytime, I do it when I plant. I just sprinkle it around the base of the plants. Uh, If I start seeing fungal problems on the leaves, early blight or septoria or any of these things, then I will soak some cornmeal in water and use that liquid to spray. But uh, I put that good handful of it around the base of the plants when I first set them out.
8: Okay, gotcha. Uh, The second question I have is about olive trees. We've got two olive trees, and uh, they've got a bunch of little tiny olives on there right now. Mm -hmm. Now, They're young plants, and they're in one of these big, giant plastic uh, buckets, you know, about uh, three foot tall and three foot wide. There's two of them in there. So we're going to move them to a larger uh, area to plant now that they're a little bit more healthy. Uh, What do you recommend in terms of, when we when we split them out of the the bucket and uh what type of soil would you recommend
1: so are they in individual buckets now or do you have more than one in one big bucket
8: more than one, one big bucket
1: okay well i wish we'd had this conversation six weeks ago because invariably you're going to do a bit of damage to the roots in in separating them out and uh the cooler it is, the better. We're we're just right on the verge of really hot weather, so get this done immediately. Uh, are you going to put them in individual containers or are you going to plant them in the ground?
8: Well, what would you recommend?
1: Either way, things are always easier to maintain in the ground. Now, they will grow just as well in a pot as they will in the ground, but uh, you can't go off and leave something in a container for a very long time because it is uh they're they're more demanding as far as the amount of water and how you fertilize and all because their roots are confined to the pot when you put them in the ground those roots can grow to the next county and maintenance becomes much less but uh you do whatever is you know most effective for patrick i i would put them in the ground you need to put them in a sunny spot you need to space them out to where they're oh eight to ten feet apart but when you when you when you separate them out in a container that big, you're not going to be able to hold much soil around the roots. You're basically going to be planting bare root plants. So have your holes dug and ready. Um, tip that big pot over, slide the whole mass of them out, and one by one, take them, replant them, water them in immediately. I would use a little Super Thrive, a little Biotone, a little uh, Medina Plus, something like that. But you simply cannot li- allow them to be dry. Don't let the phone interrupt you. Don't let the spouse interrupt you. Don't let anything slow you down because if that root system dies out or dries out, then the whole plant can die on you. So it needs to be, uh, needs to be one quick process. After you have gotten them planted in their new home, whether it's in the ground or in a new pot, um, In addition to maintaining the proper moisture in the soil, just every time you think about it, pick up the garden hose and spray the trees just up and down because they have a soft bark at this point. They're going to absorb a bunch of moisture directly through the bark, and this is what's going to minimize the shock. the plants so I guess in summary I'd just tell you do it as soon as you can Uh, be sure that the roots don't dry out on the individual plants during the process Uh, be sure that you don't plant them too deeply if in doubt plant them a little too high you want to see those big roots that are starting to flare out from the trunk those should be at ground level never below it and uh, it's not a big job It's not going to take you a long time to do but uh, you need to do it in the very near future
8: all right. Well, we'll certainly do that. I uh, appreciate the info.
1: Always a pleasure. Report back on how things do for you. I will. Thanks. Thanks, Patrick. Goodbye. Chris is up next. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Bob. Morning, It's Andy. It's uh. Go ahead.
2: Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I stepped under there.
1: Go right ahead, Chris.
2: Okay, I've got a correction for something that you said yesterday on your on your show. It has to do with insectaries in Texas. Okay. And you mentioned that the Rincon Betoba was an insectary in Texas. That's actually in Ventura, California.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: But the Cunafin insectary is here in Texas.
1: Okay, very good.
2: Down on 277 between Camado and Pedras Negras, down by the border. Very good. If you got a, a pencil, I've got their number here. I brought them up on the website.
1: I will look it up when I get to the nursery. I've got oh, okay. so much stuff in front of me, but uh, yeah, you're I'm exactly sorry. right. Kunafin is uh, is our good Texas uh, insectary. They don't produce all of the different things, but they they produce a lot of good ones. They produce a lot of them that don't have a long shelf life. So if there are a lot of things, if you're looking for, it's probably best to go directly to them rather than look for a local oh. supplier a supplier on them.
2: Yeah, the, this Wrinkle Betoba. I've been doing business with them for years on on the uh, on the Trick of grandma wasp Right.
1: Stars. Right.
2: And they're very. It's uh, like a, an old mom and pop <laughs> that became a big business. Yeah. They're very familiar. They're very friendly. They're uh, a lot of help on the telephone. It's certainly worth uh, keeping them in mind, and the the prices aren't really outrageous. And the response is immediate.
1: Well, that's I mean, good. Was, I, I thought they had a Texas location, but it may be California only. But I Kunifin was the other one I was trying to think of. But uh, um, they, you know, like you say, they're they're good, dependable people. And like some of us in the nursery business, we're there because we love what we do, and that's the best kind of people to do business with. Oh yeah,
2: that's these guys. I have another question that's unrelated. Okay. That's to do with uh, ornamental pear trees on. A uh, piece of property I have up uh, northwest of DFW area, mm-hmm. and these ornamental pears are left alone and um, untended for a long time, and they're producing these uh, root volunteers, uh-huh. spiky, thorny root volunteers all around the base.
1: You need to cut them off, cut them back yep. substantially.
2: How much damage am I doing to the roots when I, when I cut these things out?
1: Well, I wouldn't be chopping the roots out. I would just be, you know, cutting off those root sprouts and uh, okay. be sure that you have the root flare exposed. Because uh, yeah. uh, are they aristocrats? Are they Bradfords? Do you know which pair they are?
2: No, no. It, okay. it the previous owner that planted these. It, he kind of landscaped this this residential home in the mm-hmm. middle of a cow pasture. And so there's all kinds of problems related to the fact that the, this yard is in the middle of a cow pasture. And I've been doing, as you suggest, I've been cutting them off just at the volunteer. Uh-huh. I'm not not digging the roots out. And there's not much I can do about the trees that he's planted deep, mm-hmm. but I have Washed away the soil so that I I don't have so much of the flare that's covered up now.
1: Well, you need but to get you worked, need to get, get that in. you need to get that flare just totally exposed. Uh, if you can do it by washing away, that's fine. If you use a a tool like a hori hori knife or even an old uh, hay hook, uh, the professional guys use what's called an air spade. Oh, runs, yeah. yeah, runs off a big compressor and it's basically like a sand blaster with no sand. But getting that root flare exposed is going to cut down very substantially those root sprouts come up as a result of stress to the tree that's that's the tree's response to thinking that the big tree is going to die it better put out something from the roots so when you get that root flare exposed the root sprouts will become less of a problem but in the meantime you know, just cutting them off as close to the roots as you can uh, is going to be about all you can do, and that should put some vigor back into the top of the trees. Uh, uh, the ornamental pears are susceptible to bacterial fire blight, just as our productive pears are. So you want to limit your pruning to taking out dead wood, taking out narrow angle branches, but getting the root flare exposed, getting the root sprouts cut off, good dose of organic fertilizer. Um, uh, should go a long way toward getting those trees back to the ornamental trees they were intended to be.
2: Yeah, I pretty well winged this property off of all the chemical stuff. You should yeah. see the you know jugs of of glyphosate sitting in the garage when I <laughs> bought this place. So I, I mean, it's surrounded by taxes. there's all the manure that you could possibly need, uh-huh. in all these yearling calves that are grazing around the outside of this this house. So I I I, I can do that part. But I guess it's my own damn fault that and the neglect of leaving these trees alone is what brought this problem up. Well,
1: uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's, down. there's just always more things to do than there are time, yeah. than there's time to do it. So <laughs> it's a matter of setting your priorities. I would make the root flare exposure fairly high priority. Um, glyphosate goes away. I do not worry about cows grazing. I mean, I like it, but I don't worry about the manure where cows have been grazing on glyphosate sprayed fields. It's a persistent herbicide, the sulfonated real herbicides, especially ones like picloram. That's where you have to be real careful because that herbicide will grow through the cow come out in the manure and then that manure is very toxic to things but uh if the worst stuff they've been using is glyphosate that's uh there are a lot worse things out there than there than there are roundup so uh uh, make use of that manure where you can but uh you want to be you want to be looking around for p plus d or grazon or some of these picloram based products those are the things that would make me question whether the manure is clean enough to use or not
2: yeah, that part was okay. The, the, the pasture has not been treated with a bunch of uh, uh, chemicals so sure. like the pickle ram. I did the test, and it passed the test, so Good. that was kind of nice. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just a, a sweet resource. <laughs> but inside the fence line, it uh-huh. was treated like a residential property mm-hmm. with all the weed killers and all that, that chemical fertilizer and all that. So I've kind of weaned the property off of that, and it's a little bit more natural. Well, and by not getting up there often enough, I've I've created this condition
1: now. Yeah, well, um, weaning indicates a gradual removal. You need to be an abrupt halt to all that chemical stuff and just start doing it right, and things will get better day by day. And uh, I, you know, if your ornamental pairs will be a, a a good bit of exercise for you, but uh, you're on the right track, Chris. And uh, call me anytime I can help. Mm-hmm. It is a nice Sunday morning out there. Nice if you liked a little bit of rain and we sure did need it, so happy to see it come. Uh Tracy, Mike, Mac, and Janice, my next four callers, and Tracy's first. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning.
0: I have two questions. Okay. The first one is I have a lot of blackfoot daisies growing uh-huh. around where I live, and I wanted to propagate them, Okay. and I was wondering if you could tell me how to do that.
1: They propagate pretty easily from cuttings. Um, you want to go toward the tips of the little branches coming out and make your cuttings Oh, roughly two to three inches long. Um, the commercial guys root them directly in soil, but most of us that don't have the big mist tables and things that doesn't work as well. I root them in straight perlite. I'll take a you know shallow pot. And put a bunch of cuttings in there, maybe an inch apart in the perlite. I'll keep the perlite moist. I will mist it every chance I get, which for me is two or three times a day usually. And probably about 80% of them will root for you. You can either, if you're going to be there to care for them, you can plant them directly into the ground, or you can move them to individual, say, four inch pots to let them get a little bit better root system before you put them out. But Blackfoot daisy, almost any time through the spring and summer, summer months pretty easy to root and start
0: perfect and then the second question i have is that um there are some other daisy uh well they look like daisies i don't know if they are but (laughs) they have they they have pointy leaves they're smaller than the blackfoot daisies and the the leaves are kind of spiky could you tell me what those are
1: I will tell you, first of all, uh, when you have a daisy-type flower, it's referred to as a composite because it's actually two different what we call ray flowers and disc flowers. Back in my old plant taxonomy days where we had to learn to identify things, uh, we used to talk about the DYCs, the damn yellow composites, because there's so many of them. It is so hard to separate out and identify them. I suspect mm-hmm. what you are looking at is something called a four-nerve daisy. Is one of our mm-hmm. native uh, yellow composites. Uh, but there are only about fifteen thousand other yellow no. composite daisies. But <laughs> well, but, this but the white. spiky this yeah. The, I'm sorry.
0: It's white.
1: Oh, it's white. Um,
0: yes, it's a smaller it's a smaller flower than the blackfoot daisy, but it's still white and has the yellow center.
1: Hmm. Um. There. Look at fleabane. There are, okay. s- there are about four different flea banes that are native plants that would fall okay. into that category. Uh, and these are, these are wildflower type things?
0: Yes, they are wildflowers.
1: The book that I use is by a fellow named uh, Marshall Enquist, E-N-Q-U-I-S-T, and it's called The Wildflowers of the Texas Hill Country. I find that that is one of the easiest books to use. There are two or three other good ones. Les did one. Uh, there's even a newer one out there. But uh, uh, I still, Marshall's book is, for me, the easiest one to turn to. But I'm guessing it is probably one of the flea fleabanes, but that's just a guess because there are plenty of white composites as well.
0: Okay, perfect. Uh, one more quick question. Um, I also, is there any other book that you could recommend that I could use to identify native plants on the area where I live that there's so many different things I've never seen before and I have no clue what they are.
1: Well, uh, again, Marshall's book will show you just about everything that flowers, green shrubs, and things like that. Mm -hmm. What we have a lot of people do, they'll take just a tiny little limb, they'll take a piece of poster board and just take all these little limbs and tape them to that piece of poster board and bring them by and to a pretty good degree, one of us can take a look at and just write the names down underneath them. Um, in general, there are some books by a couple named uh uh, let's see, Sally and I think it's Andy Wachowski, Wasowski, W-A-S-O-W-S-K-I. And uh, they have written the best books I know of on native Texas plants. But if you start with the wildflowers of the hill country, you're going to go a long way toward it. But uh, Sally and Andy's books, they've moved off to New Mexico now, but they, they left behind some very good Texas books. And that's where I would start. And then anything you can't identify, like I say, uh, put it on a poster board or something or other that's where the names idea. can be easily written down. And we look forward to helping you.
0: All right. Well, I thank you. Have uh, a great you, day.
1: You do the same. Thank you. Um, bye bye. All right, Mike's up next. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sitting
9: sir. Not here on the patio uh, listening to God's symphony. <laughs> the, the a very
1: pleasant melody this morning.
9: Yes, it is. A pitter patter of rain on the tin roof, and
1: that? we had a bit of the booming bass section earlier now, but it's just it's down to the to the lighter lighter portions now.
9: Yeah, last night I sat out here and watched a little bit of a light show. Not uh-huh. much, but it was enjoyable uh bob i have a couple of questions for you uh oh, are we still together
1: we are together and let's go quickly because news is coming up on us
9: okay uh i have a real fine neighbor next door to me and on the fence line i had some legustrum, and it was uh pretty sparse at the bottom and they were pretty tall so i cut them in half and they all died I'm looking for a barrier between the two of us. Uh,
1: and how bit, how much sun and how tall do they need to grow, Mike?
9: Well, I'd like them four to six feet.
1: Okay. How uh, much sun? I'm
9: a, bit, I'm a little bit higher than he is, but... Uh,
1: how much sun?
9: Uh... So-so filtered,
1: son. Okay. Uh, your best bet, if you can find it, is probably going to be a shrub called Xylosma, X-Y-L-O-S-M-A. And uh, it'll grow fairly quickly. Uh, You can easily keep it to six feet, and it will grow in the bright shade like that or morning sun. Uh, Your other choice is going to be a wider shrub, but uh, easily grown, will be the loquat or Japanese plum. Uh, It wants to get taller than that, but it'll make a good dent shrub that'll be a good barrier.
9: On that fence line, I uh, I did plant a couple of uh, oleanders.
1: Bad choice if it's not full sun.
9: Yeah, I have some others out uh, front that are in shade, and they do all right, but not no cigar, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, uh, like I say, the Xylosma and Loquat would be my two top choices where you're looking for a thick, dense barrier. Your other uh, option would be to perhaps increase the height of that fence a little bit and plant something like Confederate Jasmine on it. Confederate Jasmine would densely cover that fence within a single season. You're not going to get as many flowers as you would get if you had full sun. But if you're looking for something that will, you know, be, be a solid, nice privacy barrier, in one season's growth, that's the other option. It will grow on a board fence or chain-link fence. And if you need to, like you say, increase the height of the fence, you can just string you know, a couple of wires or a couple of nylon cords or something like that up there for it to wrap itself around. And you can get a six- to eight-foot fence in about six months' time that way.
9: Well, I may try some of that. Uh, Bob, you have over at, uh, at the Shades of Green a uh, red a red uh a banana plant Uh-huh Is there a difference between red banana and an obsidian banana plant
1: Obsidian is not nearly as dark red There are there are bunches of different bananas uh I think the one we have maybe roho, but uh, these are you know they're probably thirty or forty that are commonly grown. The absinian is a a more dwarfer one. Cavendish is another one that's a little bit more dwarf, and uh, there are differences in their appearance, but not in their culture. All of them want you know bright place to grow and want uh, pretty much unlimited water supply, but um, they're they're going to be very very similar in how they grow.
9: Okay, I was just curious about the just the name, the red or the obsidian, but there's many others. There
1: are many others out there, and uh, they're beautiful plants. Uh, again, they're not something that's going to produce much in the way of an edible banana, but they're sure uh, an interesting feature in the garden. We'll put it that way.
9: Okay, I have one last question, but it's not about plants. Okay. Uh, I have saw some uh, 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 hummingbirds, some birds. Uh, ruby reds mm-hmm. Is it, isn't it too early and oh. i thought they didn't come in till august
1: no they frequently come in uh they are migratory and you will see them as early as february uh but they fly way on up i mean colorado wyoming you'll see them way on up in this part of the country but uh uh the ruby throats are one of the first ones to come through and like say late February, is not unusual to have them. The bigger numbers don't really come in until a little bit later, and then when they start flying south again will depend on what the weather is and what their food supply is. But it is it is not too early for hummingbirds. <laughs> there There's swarms of them around, both the violet chins, the ruby throats, and uh, a few other less common ones. But, yeah, I have your hummingbird feeders out, and you'll get lots of entertainment.
9: Oh, I've got them out there. and I've, For the first time, I've seen uh, – as many as four on one feeder
1: (laughs) you're just getting started mike you may have eight on one feeder hey listen it's good to talk to you i need to get mac in here next good morning mac good morning mr webster no mr Uh, webster is my father i'm bob good morning to you
5: Bob. (laughs) Bob, yes sir uh always you've always helped me through my experiments and gardening is a learning experience that never ends and i appreciate the help and You've always helped me in the past, and my questions this week is, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, talked about uh, mountain laurels. Okay. And you said that you had to scarf the seeds, and immediately when I hunt, when we parted, I... It dawned on me. I did not ask when was the opportune time to plant those seeds or if there was one.
1: You can can plant any time, and obviously Mother Nature doesn't do a scarifying process, but in nature, those seeds can lie there for 10 years without growing and then sprout and make a nice tree. You scarify just to get faster germination and to get like a hundred percent germination but um obviously the the plants drop the seeds uh mid to late summer so that's when mother nature plants them but uh i've done it mm, pretty much 12 months out of the year and as long as you can keep the soil fairly warm if you do it in the winter months it's nice to have a propagating mat or you know a warm bench to grow them on something keeps the roots warm but uh, this is an ideal time of year. You, of course, will be using last year's seed because this this year's seed is not mature yet. But you do it when it's convenient for Mac, not by the calendar.
5: Okay. Well, my question is, elephant ears. I've had uh, success with elephant ears, and here a couple of a year or so ago, I had some uh, cold weather that. Uh, knocked my elephant ears back and they had been in pots Mm
0: -hmm.
5: and i thought that the soil of the pots would perhaps insulate them from the cold and it didn't quite do it okay and i was wondering if elephant ears are better planted directly in the ground or
1: in the pots you can do it either way in the pot. Of course, they require more protection, but there's a more basic thing you need to realize about elephant ears. They're basically two groups of plants that we call elephant ears. There is a relatively round bulb. I mean, we sometimes get the some bulbs the size of softballs, and these are yeah. called colocasias and they grow as sort of a they they grow from one spot the leaves come up right at ground level and they can make huge leaves they are very cold hardy my grandparents grew them up in Dallas and they would freeze down but come back out year after year after year more commonly recently, we've been seeing a second type of elephant ear and actually coming in many different colors that rather than calling them a colocasia, we call them an allocasia, A-L-O-C-A-S-I-A. They're referred to as upright elephant ears, and they actually make almost a stem that comes up out of the ground, and the leaves may originate 6, eight, ten inches above ground level as these things get larger. Unfortunately, they are not nearly as cold hardy, and I think the the alocasias, the upright elephant ears, or the yeah you know, the upright elephant ears, they are probably better in the ground because you can bury them with mulch. They don't freeze solid. I mean, the a pot can freeze solid all the way through and freeze whatever is in it. But um, I suspect. Since you got the cold damage, it's what you have are the upright elephant ears. They will grow out of it most of the time. They'll start with much smaller leaves. It'll take a couple of years to get back up to uh those really big leaf sizes, but um uh, first of all, be sure you know which type of elephant ears. If you're buying elephant ears, ask if they're alocasias or colocaceas. Obviously, you won't get that answer at a box store, but if you're dealing with a good nursery, you will. And if you're looking for the hardiest ones, plant the colocasias. If you're looking for some of the more colorful varieties, alocasias are fine. But I think they're better in the ground and realize that some winters, you may have to protect them two or three nights.
5: Okay. My next question, I got it. My next question is, on the has to grow, Uh I got uh, some uh, tomato plants, and I planted them on top of the perlite, just like you said. On top of
1: the rock phosphate, not the perlite, the soft rock phosphate.
5: Excuse me, I I was thinking perlite. I I meant the rock phosphate. Okay. And they're doing really good. And the nursery, not a box store, (laughs) told me that... uh, some has to grow Uh to put on that. And I've been reading all the has to grow, the mixture of it, but I wanted to ask you how much of that, after you mix up a gallon, goes per plant. I have them in five-gallon buckets.
1: Okay. Well, recognize, first of all, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've got the right one, but there's has to grow plant and there is has-to-grow lawn. They There are two different kinds of has-to-grow, and you very strictly want the one that says has-to-grow plant. The has-to-grow lawn is for grass and nothing else. But has-to-grow plant, I use a lot of it. I mix it about an ounce to a gallon of water, and I probably, again, there's no such thing as too much on a plant in a container because the excess will just run through and you need to water it thoroughly. I probably put at least a quart, one to two quarts on a five-gallon size pot and uh, you'll never do too much. You can do it too often, uh, but thats uh, I do it about every two weeks through the growing season and just uh, put enough on there to wet it real thoroughly in a container like that. It's going to be probably one to two quarts.
5: Okay, and my next question is, on the cornmeal. What type of cornmeal is that specifically?
1: Well, it's you just want whole ground cornmeal. You want ground up kernels of corn. Uh in the feed store you may buy cornmeal, you may buy scratch feed, which is a little bit larger, and then of course there's the whole kernels of corn that you can purchase for, a lot of people sell it for deer feed even though it's crappy feed for deer but uh, what you want to avoid is what they sell most of what they sell in the grocery store, they have taken and polished off the outside of the corn, they've taken that hard outer covering off unfortunately that's where most of the good material is, you're left with nothing but that starchy middle of the corn, so don't buy quote, enriched cornmeal Meal or baking cornmeal, because those, they've taken away the best part of the cornmeal. You want either whole ground or stone ground cornmeal, and it doesn't make any difference, really, whether it's uh, white corn or yellow corn or sweet corn or popcorn, for that matter. When you get the whole ground-up corn, uh, you're getting all the things that will grow the beneficial trichoderma fungus, and that's what you're after.
5: Okay, and when you brew that, what is the formula that you love?
1: I just, per gallon of water, I'll use three or four tablespoons of cornmeal, let it uh, just sit for 18 to 24 hours, and then just use that, uh, that liquid as a spray or as a drench.